to episode zero dash B of the Paperless Federalist. I'm Carrie. I'm Justin. And uh, today, in this episode, what we're trying to do is just establish some context. And uh, what are we tr- draw expand on that if you can, Justin? What we're we trying to do in ep- this episode? Well, uh, what I think we'd like to do is talk a little bit about the history that was leading up to the necessity for the Federalist Papers, uh, and what uh, spurned Hamilton, Madison, and Jay into action in defense of the. Uh, the, the new proposed United States Constitution that eventually, obviously, was ratified. So what got their hackles up, basically? Yeah, exactly. What got them out of the bed and writing and angry enough to... To, to crank out, what, was it how many? 85? 85. 85 they, in less they, than a year. They're, they're very, they, they got some vinegar in them. They, uh, they were quite inspired to do it. So, um, and, and I think there's some interesting things that, that, that lead up to this that might not be common knowledge. Uh, and so... Um, you know, I, I know that I found a few things interesting and looking back at it, you know, what led up to uh, the Constitutional Convention and what led up to uh, the necessity for the Federalist Papers. And then just the speed at which these these authors uh, really hammered them out. And cause, oh, yeah. Because they were the Isaac Asimov's of uh, essays. They were really cranking them out. I know. I think that if, if I know Ham- that that reference came to my mind. <laughs> I am convinced that if Hamilton wouldn't have been wouldn't have been shot by Burr, we would have had the uh, the Foundation series probably a hundred years earlier from uh, from Mr. Hamilton himself. There you go. There you go. Oh, you mean what we're doing now? Perhaps. Yeah. Perhaps he'd be podcasting and podcasting his, in podcast in, in whatever whatever form it would have taken then. Um. Well, I do agree with you that I think that it's it's a. Uh, not about the podcasting part, yes. <laughs> but uh, totally disagree with you there. Yeah. Uh, the uh, about the, I think it's hard to uh, understand the Federalist Papers without sort of understanding what was going on at the time um, that they were written, what spurred them. I mean, nowadays when you hear about it, it's mainly like uh, in the context of you know public debate about particular issues. So that, you know, people would just grab the one that seems applicable, we'll talk about that. Uh, but and I think to that, what you're saying is, uh, you know, I know with the most recent election from uh, by uh, our current president uh, here in the fall of uh, 16, um, 2016. 2016. Yeah, thank you. The uh, established what millennia yes. we're in. <laughs> so supposed. when they're listening to this in the 31st century. <laughs> they know what we're talking about. Yeah. Um, but right after that, obviously, there's a question about what should the electors do uh, mm-hmm. when um, the current president did not uh, win uh, the popular vote. And and so that came up into debate, and people were looking back to that to that particular Federalist paper. Yeah. And all of a sudden, everyone was an expert about the Federalist papers. Everyone had debated yeah. and said, "Oh, yeah. this is what they say. This is what they meant." And 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 they're taking the one paper out of the context of the entire body. What of it work, was written in response to, and and what it was written in response to, and and out of it, like just historical contents of what was occurring around. Uh, in the author's minds at the time that they wrote it. I mean, stunningly, besides us, no one at the time decided to think, you know what, this would be an excellent reason to have a deep dive into the Federalist <laughs> Papers and just do a ton of content based on it. I've been waiting for CNN or MSNBC or Fox News to do something like that, but yeah. no, just no, us. We're, it fell to us, and yeah. we've, we've answered the call. Making sure democracy does not fall through the cracks. No. Charge that hill. That's what we're doing here. <laughs> so but history around the time, it is. It is like a big, a giant sort of puzzle to be assembled because you know there's a lot going on. You got the uh, you Declaration of Independence, Articles of Confederation, other documents that led up to it. You you know you come out of the Revolutionary War, Shades Rebellion, you know the Constitution itself being passed, and yeah. some of the less uh, sexy and exciting things like the Northwest Ordinance, which. 
doesn't make the news as much anymore. No, but uh, it's an important part of uh, the considerations of what led up to Federalist so, Papers. So, you know, at the time, just to kind of give people a little bit of understanding about how much different the 13 states were, there were only, and this may sound like a large number to the person living at that time period, but in our minds, there were only 4 million people inhabiting those 13 states. Uh, you mentioned the Articles of Confederation. And to remind everybody again real quick, what was what were the Articles of Confederation? Well, the Articles of Confederation, I want to say this, it really surprised me. They were the, the original founding document, I guess you say. The Declaration of Independence was just that. You know, we're no longer part of Great Britain. We're our own country. But the Declaration of Independence wasn't really a system of government. It didn't say, like, how laws would be passed or who would have power to do what, when, where, and why. That was the Articles of Confederation. And what really surprised me about that is I hadn't really locked down how early that they happened. They started drafting them um, before they even passed the uh, Declaration of Independence. And they uh, were finalized. They went into effect. Um, They started... Tentatively using them during the Revolutionary War. Okay. But they were finalized and in effect in 1781. And so, we had several presidents, one-year presidents, under the Articles of Confederation. Okay. Uh, was it, um, I don't know if... Were the Articles... Did they limit the presidency to one year under the Articles of Confederation? Well, generally... Yes, they did. Okay. And uh, in a nutshell, the Articles of Confederation were very different than what the Constitution was. Uh Obviously, a lot of you know a lot of historians have already highlighted the fact that the, the Articles of Confederation laid out a much weaker government national government model than the Constitution. So one of, one of the things that my understanding is, and correct me if I'm wrong, that, that led to the Articles being so weak was that the federal government at the time under that system of government could not. Well, the, it's not that they couldn't lobby a tax, but the only method in which they could lobby a tax is that there was absolute unanimous agreement amongst the states in order to be able to approve the tax. This resulted in any state having their own veto power over everyone else's interests if they didn't didn't agree with the tax. I guess the way I tend to see to, see, to tended to see it when looking at the Articles of Confederation uh, is that sad as it was, the national government was pretty, in order to get money for anything from the states because the states were the ones who were levying tariffs, basically taxes on imports from anything that came into the country. And tax eventually devolved to taxes on each other. They, they, yes, because they were uh, independent states in the meaning of countries more than we think about states today as of components of a larger country. Okay, so they were almost acting, um, yes, like you said, as independent so they sovereigns. Were, they were just, getting the money. Yeah. And the national government was pretty much reduced to having like donation telethons to okay. say, please give us money, donate some money to us mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. we can pay our bills mm-hmm. and continue to be your national government. They were The national government back then was a lot less the big, scary monolith that they are today. And probably a lot closer in power and, and revenue collection ability to, I'd say, NPR. Okay. And, and well, let's they not, would they show up once a year. And, that, and that's not a slight on NPR. Would, you know, get, not, not a slight on NPR. I'm just know. saying they would yeah. discontinue your programming once a year until you gave them enough Somebody, money to get their basic stuff and, done. And they constantly, constantly, for one week, it's nothing... Just, just nonstop fundraising. And if uh, I could say, I think NPR probably is doing better than the original government because they <laughs> innovated by having matching challenges, which the go. federal government back then didn't think to try. Didn't, didn't, didn't try those matching no, challenges. No, they just asked for the money straight out. Well, you know, you got to innovate, really. Yeah. I mean, I will. It was the 18th century, so <laughs> okay. they had a lot to, you know, I for the time they were doing pretty good. Okay. But, well, you uh, know, and that doesn't. It's not entirely uh, surprising that this was the system of, that they initially defaulted to, having you know throwing uh, when they just finished throwing off, um, admittedly with some help, 
but throwing off the uh, the king of England and the largest you know military and empire that the world had seen at the time. Um, if I'm not mistaken in that, I mean, they did, uh, they did throw off the uh, weight of the, the, yeah. the king of England. We won that, war. you know, but I mean, like, as far as the size, <laughs> thank you. I am aware, <laughs> I know we won the war. I mean, spoiler alert <laughs> for you there. Spoiler. Uh, Hashtag spoiler. We, uh, we pulled we, out a win on that. We one. pulled out a win of W, you know, uh, we managed to skate by it. What was it about 20 years later when it, we, uh, 1812, the war, I guess it's more 20 years later, but, uh, uh, I might need to edit this out if I'm horribly wrong on my. Well, what was the next war that the British basically? We almost basically lost the whole country back to the British. Well, uh, which one was that? Which I'm a guy was... who'd like to see the war as half full rather okay. than half empty. But which which war was that? That, that was, was the war. Eighteen twelve. All right, thank you. Yeah, we... I know that because of my uh, totally non-relevant love of Napoleonic Wars. We okay, were, that was an ancillary conflict of the Napoleonic Wars. Okay, so upside <laughs> locked down our sovereignty. They didn't mess with us again. Yeah. Yeah. Downside. Got her capital burned. So okay. you gotta take the good with the bad. <laughs> so, anyways, back to back to where we started. You know, my point, which was, they just got over thrown off over this king. They had a, a, a deep, deep fear, as I understand it, or concern, uh, to at least say, of a strong central federal government. And yes, so, what's the one a... way that you can actually uh, just right to mind think? How am I going to make sure this thing doesn't become too big? You limit its food supply. You limit its money. Yeah, right? you power so, the purse. So, but what's interesting about that is the articles uh, did not. The one power they did give the the national government, um, you know, which makes them stronger then than, like, say, for example, yeah. the EU is today. Okay, is that it? They so it, gave, it, it right, they right. gave them foreign. They gave them the the military authority and the and the yeah. foreign uh, the foreign. Um, Diplomatic and treaty ability. Okay, so even the Articles of Confederation, which failed, or at least was replaced, I'll put it that way, I won't say it failed, um, but uh, necessitated quick replacement, you're saying, is is stronger and more robust than the uh, European Union. Yes, well, it depends, because it's it's not stronger, I would say, per okay. se. Uh, it's sort of like the other side of the coin. Okay. Um, like, the EU uh, is strong, has a strong economic integration yes. of those countries and you know and some countries don't like that yeah. but weak military integration each yes. country has its own military okay. by contrast okay, the American right. Confederacy mm-hmm. back then that, I mean as you highlighted yes very weak economic integration not really well they could tariff each yeah. other they yeah. could have economic disputes but strong military integration and yeah. as you would expect from like a, a agreement basically based upon it was a wartime measure yeah. they were working they were military allies and so uh, that the articles yeah. are consistent with so that. So the uh, enemy of my uh, friend here is uh... <laughs> the enemy of my enemy is my friend. <laughs> yeah, but the states weren't necessarily enemies. Um, oh, contraire. Oh it's, no. It's, it, okay, well, that correct, was an I stand undercurrent. That was an undercurrent of the uh, the How constitutional many? convention. Okay. Oh, that's true. Because they had different interests. And they did. You, they did. You're right. If you look at the Articles of Confederation, it's remarkable the extent to which the founding fathers. I feel like they were wrong on this one. They really thought that in the country, the primary organizer of everyone's interests would be state interests. Mm-hmm. Of the different states are going to have different interests, and to the extent they ally, similar states will have similar interests, and it will be by state, not by party, not by issue. I mean, imagine that now, as far as yeah, there are issues that are more regional, but you know, we, to the extent we have red and blue states, it's not mm-hmm. because they necessarily have you know same aligned issues. Yeah. Right. So the issues of the people it's, of Montana aren't necessarily the same as Texas. Yeah. Right. They but, just happen. They, but you know, they, they, they fall they in the same, the same way. But yeah. 
It's not because um, they're natural allies, you know. The, yeah. But they didn't really think. I mean, when you, especially in the structure of how people were represented in the Confederation Congress, um, each you didn't like. For example, under our Constitution, mm-hmm. you'd have a you know two senators and a number of congressmen, congresswomen, yes. mm-hmm. um, based on population, and they each yeah. had their own vote. Yes. Whereas back in the Articles, it was by committee. So a state would send, say, you know, you had to have at least two guy, two people. I think two to seven. You send it two to seven, but between all of them, they have one vote. Okay. Could you imagine how crazy that would be now if everybody who went to... So each state was reduced to just one vote. Can you imagine, yeah, sending Texas or California, mm-hmm. they have, you know, a ton of representatives, but they all collectively have to agree on one vote on something. It would be <laughs> chaos. It would know, be fist fights on the, on the floor of Congress. Well, that ended up happening anyways at some well, point. <laughs> you know, um, if I, fair I, point. I, anecdotes, if, if I'm coming to mind uh, correctly, I think somewhere... Uh, there's been some less than civil behavior on the on the floors of Congress uh, under yeah, our current throughout system. history. <laughs> so, but, but, but you know, going back to what was going on at the time here of of, of leading up to the Federalist Papers uh, and into the Constitutional Convention, uh, another another one of the issues and concerns was we mentioned the the the, the free flow of goods in amongst the several states here in the thirteen uh, thirteen states. You know, Rhode Island apparently at the time had started a system of taxing essentially. Anything that was traveling along the road that was known as the post road. The post road was a road that connected and ran through all 13 states. So think of it in, in modern context as their interstate system. Yeah. Okay. And so Rhode Island decided, hey, if something's coming through, we're taxing it. Um, and uh, you can and they're s- ideally positioned to do so because they're right in the middle of it. Yeah. At the time, right in the it's middle of the country. Not as lucrative at the time. for say someone yeah. at the end of the road. No, it's not. Uh, so you know, at the time they were would have been considered to be in the middle of the country. Um, and you know. Yeah, you're right. I mean, why not? I mean, you know, throw that up and say, hey, we're going to tax tax whatever comes our way. Uh, this- and, you know, again, that has its roots in the Articles of Confederation themselves because in Article 13, which is, I think, the last one, unlike now where, you know, our arguments between states are adjudicated by the judiciary to decide who's right and who's wrong according to, you know, standards of law. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, under the Articles of Confederation, if there's a fight between the states, it didn't go to any particular judges. It instead uh, would go to the Confederation Congress uh, to decide, and, and you know, sort of legislatively, so as a political solution, and not one that was decided by aspects of law necessarily. And okay. I was actually incorrect. That was not Article 13. That was. I know. Kill me. I'm. Re- <laughs> My uh, lack of relative expertise on the... Uh, Articles of Confederation. I, mean, I thought you had a hammer lock on this before I know. <laughs> I have to apologize. Um, it was not. It was in Article 9. Article 9. Yeah. Really I was well. distracted. That's right after talking about granting letters of marquee. You know, most good things on, and I have found in a... Uh, we'll see if this plays out when we go through the um, Federalist Papers, but... Uh, I always find that the ninth slot is usually a really good slot when a list of things like, in the context at least of uh, albums. I know I'm a big music fan myself, and I've noticed that the tr- number track number nine is usually a really strong track on any given particular album. So if anyone wants to test my theory on that, go grab your favorite album and look and see what the number nine track is. I bet you'll be surprised as it being one of the top three tracks on any album of twelve or more songs. I'll say. All right. Well, your third plays out in the Arctic Confederation. Track number nine in your articles are pretty strong. There you go. I mean, everything from receiving ambassadors to fixing weights and measures. I mean, you got it all in track nine. Track nine. There you go. Okay. So one of the other things we touched on briefly, though, uh, was uh, Shay's Rebellion. And and see, now Shay's Rebellion was not the only one rebellion for the listeners, um, uh, assuming we have any. (laughs) Um, You know, 
there were these small uprisings and and revolts, armed revolts that were occurring amongst the 13 states uh, against their own state governments uh, at the time. And so Shea, um, Daniel Shea, I'm sorry, uh, was a Revolutionary War captain who uh, felt he was not properly paid for his service in the Continental Army. Uh, and as a result, he refused to pay his taxes. Well, then he rings up a good amount of tax debt. He was a farmer. He had some land. And Massachusetts decided, well, if you're not going to, uh, I believe it's the state of Massachusetts, not the city of Boston. I don't know that I'm entirely sure which one. Yeah, attempt- Massachusetts. I know, but I'm trying to decide, like, which, I don't know that I know which one maybe you do, is the which one was attempting to take his land from him. The city? State. He state? wasn't. Okay. I mean, he right. was near, near Boston. Okay. So... Uh, he ends up in an armed rebellion against the state of Massachusetts that runs about a ha- almost a year, um, where there's an armed cl- cl- uh, conflict of farmers fighting against uh, Massachusetts, um, and and people are dying. Uh, and so there's this uh, need. Some felt uh, that the federal government needed to have an army uh, to help put down these uprisings of citizenry. <laughs> Uh, when things got uh, out of hand, we have armed armed citizen rebellions uh, going on. So, and I feel the need here to to stick up a little bit for Shay and his his people. Yeah, I feel like the extent that they're considered at all, uh, they didn't get a bad rap of you know they of just being a bunch of armed ruffians. Uh, this oh. was a this was a complicated situation. I mean, um, it came down to I mean, this is a, one of those great examples in history of uh, you know na- things that happening at the high channel high levels of government affecting normal people, and this was really almost a urban versus rural dispute it is, merchant yeah. classes versus farmer because mm-hmm. because there wasn't because the, there wasn't really a uh, a US hard currency that was accepted uh, by foreign merchants because back then you know still America was getting a lot of its uh, industrial and manufactured goods from from Europe uh, but because the US didn't have a great currency then uh, that you know would be accepted by these European merchants they were being expected to be paid in hard currency you know whether it be gold silver okay. or Europe or, or European currencies, yeah. and so there wasn't a lot of that. So the European, the merchants needed that to pay the people they're getting their stuff, their suppliers. Yeah. Um, so then to get that, they're only taking that from the farmers who are buying stuff from them, um, and the farmers didn't have it to give. Mm-hmm. And so that's when they start going out and taking their land and other things mm-hmm. where and and you so you get into takings by by governments uh, you get into civil rights and injustices and again you know uh, and property rights uh, property interests and those those common themes that in in many ways were were at least a part of the revolution itself so mm-hmm. it's 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 Mr. Shea saying well here we go again we fought off the king and now I've got this local government here in Massachusetts taking my taking my land when I wasn't properly compensated and uh, and I, I'm uh, sorry if I made made Mr. Shea seemed like a ruffian. I, he's, I, he's not a ruffian. He, I was, that was not my intent. Uh, you know, it was just... Uh, he, to him, it's his mind. He's just fighting the extension of the Revolutionary yeah. War of, you know, uh, we fought in this conflict to uh, be able to live in peace in our lands and here people, you know, the, uh, the, 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 the courts mm-hmm. are coming out and taking our land from us, uh, trying to accelerate our payments, trying to demand more funds uh, in a certain form that we didn't agree to. Mm-hmm. Um, so they can pay off these foreign overlords. This isn't this what we just fought to get rid of? And when you know Shay's rebellion, they didn't just go in and start shooting people randomly. Their initial goal was they would go into towns. They basically would go into the probate courts uh, and stop them from conducting any proceedings to foreclose on land. That's what they were. That's where they would go to hold their riots. They were stopping court proceedings. But of course, they weren't stopping just those because there wasn't. Uh, 
when a court was said, they'd handle all kinds of cases. So for the people who uh, were a po- of the more merchant classes and, uh, and uh, landholder classes, to them it was a sign of lawlessness and chaos because all of a sudden none of the courts can sit and uh, take any action because of, to them, what they see as armed ruffians. But the response so, was slow in coming. It wasn't, they didn't really, uh, they didn't really have, you know, a, a unified, they didn't have an army ready to go. They had to collect a, a random ragtag militia to get, to put it down eventually. It lasted for a good year or so. It did. It did. Uh, August of 76 through June of 78. Uh, if you can imagine, I mean, so just pause and think about that. Here you are, you know, you're living, what if like in the modern world today, there was an armed, an armed uh, rebellion uh, uh, occurring against the government of, of Ohio or Kentucky, uh, how, how just weird would that seem to us now? Yeah. You know? Um, and so all this going on, you got armed revolutions, or uh, not armed revolutions, I'm sorry, uh, re- um, uh, rebellions, rebellions, rebellions um, uh, going on. There's this uh, inter, interstate uh, commerce that is snared or ensnared with the idea of, of uh, taxes and uh, tariffs between each other. Yeah, people can't agree who owns what part of the river. People can't. Yeah, uh, yeah that's what's no one. Virginia and Maryland were arguing over the Potomac River. Um, the states want to tax each other like they're foreign countries. That like they, you know, the, you know it. It's really an open subject of debate to before the Constitution. Uh, you know, and if we would have stayed with the Articles of Confederation, the, to what extent would the United States now be a lot more like Europe, a bunch of small countries uh, neighboring against each neighboring yeah. each other than a unified country. So uh, that leads then to the Annapolis Convention in 1786. Unless, are you aware of anything else of relevance or import that you felt before September of 86 we need to talk about? Uh, no, not really. Uh, uh, there's a land ordinance of 1785, but we could touch that on that in the context of the Northwest Ordinance later on. Okay. Uh, so uh, teaser for later. Uh <laughs> For all of you fans of the Northwest Ordinance of there 1787. Go. There you go. Um, uh, so we come around. We've got the, the September 87 Annapolis Convention. Uh, and this is this is something, and looking at things, I thought was something that everybody, well, not everybody, but many uh, can relate to. Gosh, I, I know that I can. Uh, we, we go out on an evening, and, and you're with some buddies, and you're sitting around. It's your favorite watering hole, and you, and you start drinking, and then you start solving the world's problems. Uh, I think I've been there. I don't know about you. Have you ever been there? Yeah, occasionally. <laughs> I was actually just there actually recently during a mediation. <laughs> there you uh, go. We had a lot of dead so, time on our hands. Uh, so you were able to, to we solve... Weren't, we weren't rewriting constitutions, but I'd no. like to say okay. we, well, we're doing some uh, meaningful discussion. There you go. Uh, so here we are in the Annapolis Convention, held in Annapolis, Maryland, 7, September 1786, uh, at Mann's Tavern. And, and 12 delegates from five states. It's uh, a five-star rating on uh, TripAdvisor. Yes, yes. That. How's it doing Yelp? I have not seen it. So it's a write-up on Yelp. On Yelp? Okay. We'll look into that. Um, but 12 delegates from five states, uh, New Jersey, New York, Pennsylvania, Delaware, and Virginia, uh, show up and attend uh, the Annapolis Convention. Uh, and then, you know, they met there initially to kind of discuss this idea of this uh, interstate trade barriers, uh, amongst other things. Now, I'm not so well versed as you on this Annapolis convention. Who called for that? Did like the state send them there, or did they decide to go on their own? Oh, you're gonna now you're gonna you're gonna pin me down. Um, I, I think when I don't know about something, it makes me feel better to try to make others look. Okay, well, thank as well. you. You've, you've accomplished your goal. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, what I would say is that um, it was it was sort of a conjunction of of all of the trauma and the the, the upheaval that was going on. Some of the delegates started to call and say, look, we needed to get together, and these are the people that showed up. And let me run it down for you. New York, 
uh, Egbert Benson and Alexander Ham- Hamilton came. Uh, one might wonder where John Jay was. I know I did. This is hailing from New York himself, uh, not showing up to the Annapolis convention. Um, you know, I'm going to leave this personal life out of there. There's some, some dark things going some, on. Some dark times. Design, okay. So <laughs> I don't want to, so, uh, I don't want to make it feel bad. So okay, I'm going to leave it out. Just, just saying, you know, um, New Jersey, uh, Abraham Clark, William Houston, and James Sherman, Pennsylvania only had one representative, uh, Tenk, T-E-N-C-H, Cox. Uh, Delaware had George Reed, John Dixon, Dickinson, Richard Bassett. Uh, Virginia had Edmund Randolph, James Madison, and uh, St. George Tucker. So a lot of the, the big names in uh, the colonies at the time. I, a lot of the big names, yeah. Uh, although there are, again, a lot of big names were missing, too. So, uh, yeah. you know. I, oh, okay. I think I'm, that Annapolis convention, I was thinking about like a uh, comic convention one time about the Annapolis Convention. Okay. Yes, I remember now. That was the one. Right, I'm glad you caught up. That was the one. There's so many. I get all yeah. confused. Uh, that was the one where they basically coming out of the Shays Rebellion and all the debt issues they had from not being able to raise revenue. Yeah. The state sent them there to talk about amendments. Originally, that was the sort of the preliminary to uh, the Constitutional Convention. Where that, that there's the weaknesses. What are we going to do yeah. about it? They come together. And they start talking about the weaknesses, and then they decide, we need to have a national call for a constitutional convention. Yes. That's what comes out of the Annapolis Convention. And so out of the Annapolis Convention then comes this call for a constitutional convention, which starts for me. Uh, but it wasn't one to write a new constitution. No. Point of order. No, it wasn't. It wasn't. It was sold as an idea that we were going to come back together, and we were going to tweak, edit, fine-tune the Articles of of. of uh, Confederation. Add some new or add some, add some new provisions, strengthen some of them up, change mm-hmm. the font. Very <laughs> relatively modest proposal uh, at first. Because and you know, important context. Important context that it, you know might be is relevant to later points in, I don't I don't you mentioned font. I don't think these guys were fans of Sans Serif. <laughs> no, I, I think that they, prefer, I, they they were big surfs. I think yes, they yes. like their flourishes. If I if my eyes do, do not deceive me, I do not believe they do. Anyways, you were saying I cut you off. I'm sorry. You did. <laughs> Back to Article Thirteen. I was just prophesying earlier about where we going to turn. Article Thirteen is important in this way. Is near the end of the Article Thirteen, which is the last article of the Articles of Confederation, um, and this will be used by the Anti-Federalists later. It says that I'm sorry, used by who? The Anti-Federalists. Okay, thank you. Uh, it, st- it states, and I quote, uh, the articles shall be inviolably observed by the states we representatively, we respectively represent and that the union shall be perpetual. So, according to the articles, once you were in, you were in. And from a certain point of view, you know, trying to get rid of the articles and replace it with some, uh, something else or to remove yourself from its jurisdiction, you know, could be seen as uh, either treason, secession, or something comparable. So it wasn't a small thing what they prepar- that what they ended up doing in the Constitutional no, I mean, Convention. My understanding is that I mean they were just literally going uh, to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, under the guise of a lie. You know, they they went there and they told their states and said, "Hey, we're going to go." Call it a lie. Well, I mean, not a lie, but uh, they weren't out and and upfront about their intent. Well, it could be debated. Although, that, of course, that's that's which. assuming that everyone went there with the same intent. I'll, I'll, I'll I thought I was going to be the one throwing yeah. the uh, rocks at you the know, Federalists. But, but uh, you know, they they certainly went there at least some with the idea 
to to re, to start over. Well, that's a good segue <laughs> actually into the next thing that Roy shows up on the, the timeline, which is uh, the Constitutional Convention. Um, yes, you know the the vote happened in February of eighty seven. The okay. convention began in uh, May of eighty seven, um, and the first thing that happened was you know it could be debated the extent that this was sincere or not. They started by looking at whether the articles could be saved, and pretty early on. Pretty early on, as you were saying, they decided that no, the, these articles—they're pretty much gar- they're, it's just not going to work. We got to mm-hmm. rip it up and start from scratch. You know, my from my reading of it is basically is that um, they characterize it sort of like we did earlier of look, this Articles of Confederation—it was pretty much a wartime measure. It was something we had to do at the time to work together as a military alliance. We had to do it quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, because we're in the middle of a war, but we've got time now. Let's sit down and just hash out what we think would be the best thing. Since we're not in the middle of war right now, we could probably do a better job. Yes, and and, and James Madison, Alexander Hamilton being two of the big proponents of starting starting anew, right? Yes. Okay. Um, and one thing I think is ironic, considering Hamilton's strong uh, pro uh, federalist views, pro na- you know national views, and weak states, you know. Being against state strong states' rights uh, uh, and being in favor of the U.S. Constitution is that uh, he didn't really have a delegation. He he was uh, he was there mm-hmm. from New York, but nobody else was there with him. So uh, he didn't because he didn't have a quorum. He was really more little more than an observer and invi- and uh, advisor than anything else. Mm-hmm. He couldn't really have a vote. Um, but yeah, the Constitutional Convention began in uh, began in May. Uh, but they couldn't start right away when they, uh, for, at first only Virginia and Pennsylvania were present. But then by the end of May, uh, on May 25th, they had seven states and they thought, well, that's good enough to get started. Hmm. Um, and then it ended, the deliberations ended in, um, September 17th of 1787, where they approved final draft with 11 states present and Alexander Hamilton as the lone New York delegate. But again, something interesting is they were still there was still a functioning government under the Articles of Confederation at the time, uh, because as I promised earlier, getting back to the Northwest Ordinance. No, thank the, you. <laughs> you know, the Constitution of the Convention started in May of '87, ended in the final draft in September of '87. Mm-hmm. In July, on July 13th of '87, of 1787, they the Confederation Congress passed the Northwest Ordinance. <clears throat> and for uh, those not as, not familiar with the Northwest Ordinance, uh, it was a major piece of legislation because one of the big fights um, that the states had had before then, we were talking about you know arguments between states, is the states that were sort of had an eastern, or, I'm sorry, a western edge that went off into unknown territories, those states argued that Everything west of them was theirs too. So, like Virginia, uh, Pennsylvania, uh, they argued that as the country rolled west, everything was theirs. Just in a straight, that straight lateral straight line. Straight lines going all the way eventually to, to the, the Pacific, Pacific Ocean. Ocean. I wonder which state would have uh, hit the uh, the jackpot, so to speak, with the uh, the gold rush in California. Had that? Well, uh, you know, see, if you drew Mid Atlantic state, I would yeah, guess. If you, if you drew like North Carolina straight all the way across the country, yeah, would the, they have hit hit the, the jackpot? North Carolina would be the most powerful state in the union, probably. <laughs> I'll have to get down, sit down on the map sometime, and draw the line. Plot that one out, yeah, so. but. That was an important <laughs> argument between the states because you had those states that were already landlocked. They already had borders with the ocean and other states. They couldn't extend any mm-hmm. further. Mm-hmm. And you had others who, you know, 
imagine if you had those states, it could have extended all the way to the Pacific Ocean. So between the land ordinance of 1785 and the Northwest Ordinance of 1787, one of the things they did is initial agreement that no, the country would expand by letting new states in, not by making Virginia ginormous. Okay. Um, but then, uh, especially for those people who... Especially lived, not ginormous, because I don't think ginormous was a word. Uh, they would have the used time. the 18th, yes. <laughs> 18th century you. equivalent. Uh, I don't think ginormous officially became a word until a few years ago. Rather large, <laughs> or something of that nature. Yeah. But the Northwest Ordinance and Land Ordinance of 1785 also uh, organized how... Uh, New state how land will be organized for sale, um, and new states will be admitted into the union. And beside the regional interests of being able to establish those states in like the Northwest Territory, yeah. which would be Ohio, Michigan, Indiana, Wisconsin, Illinois, um, that's also a, a a big issue because you're talking about one new states are coming in, but more important for our discussion, one of the arguments that the Federalists make consistently is, oh, we've got to have this new constitution because the article, the Confederation Congress of the article, under the Articles of Confederation can't get anything done. And one of the arguments the Anti-Federalists use is, well, if they can't get anything done, how we accomplish these things? Mm -hmm. These are things that that Confederation Congress actually did. Okay. Um, They're not feckless. <laughs> so, so then, so then uh, any more on the convention itself before we jump into talking about the Federalist Papers in general? Uh, not in the convention itself. Uh, okay. They uh, accept to say that uh, in the context of Federalist Papers, they they obviously drafted the Constitution. Yes. Uh, get spoiler there spoiler again. Spoiler yeah. And they sent it out to the states to be voted on. So each state needed to ratify, right? And, 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 and But not all the states. Not all states. How many states needed to ratify in order to make everybody bound by it? Do you know? Nine. 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 Okay. So uh, nine out of 13 had to say yes. Yes. Um. So that then leads to... The and there's a reason for that number, though. Why was it? Why, why? Because that was the standard, I believe, used under the Articles of Confederation, which is highlighted by the Anti-Federalists. And under the Articles of Confederation, any, any treaty or agreement that would uh, alienate land from the Confederation as a whole had mm -hmm. to be passed by 9 of 13. Okay. Um, and so the big argument and debate they had before the Constitutional Convention was there was a debate, there was a possible deal with Spain to sell them or give them or give up any claim to the Mississippi River. Okay. And it would take nine states to do it. Some of the states who were on the eastern seaboard and wanted <laughs> to just trade with Spain were like, okay. Uh, but the ones that were thought they would get it again because they continued to expand, expand mm -hmm. Westford, mm -hmm. didn't agree. So they weren't able to sell the Mississippi River to Spain. So they head out in, after, in September uh, 1787. They send the Constitution out to the states for ratification. Mm -hmm. uh, and the Federalist Papers start being published in October 1787 all the way through August of 1788 in an effort in New York to try, especially, I guess it was mainly focused in New York, but I mean some portions of, of them were published in other newspapers throughout the Union, but news did not travel quite as fast no. as it does today in modern times. It was primarily directed at convincing New York. To ratify the Constitution. Because New York was not a big fan. It was not. It was so, the Empire State. They, they, under the, my impression of New York at that time is they thought that if, if the country became sort of like a Europe of North America mm -hmm. and it was warring colonies as like independent countries i think new york thought that they would be one of the winners that they would be able to maybe take territory from other states okay move into some of the smaller states around them and become sort of like 
the superpower of North America. Hmm. And so maybe, you know, the, becoming a one nation sort of took their dreams of possible glory away from them. <laughs> they might have become the true Empire State. Well, there you go. <laughs> Zing. <laughs> uh, so, interesting, though, we're talking about the uh, the Federalist Papers here. Uh, this, this is public relations campaign by um, Hamilton, Madison, and Jay. Uh, and... And it, oh, Jay, Jay sort of just phoned it in, though. Just, well, you know, he didn't show up to the Annapolis he, convention, yeah. so, you know. <laughs> I feel like he's a bit of a, he's a, he's a, bit of a slacker federal. Yeah, I got some thoughts on John Jay later on. I don't even know if his heart's into it, really. <laughs> okay. Uh, I mean, he starts off right out of the gun. Boom! Knocks out a few of them, but then kind of fades away. So uh, I did hear, though, that uh, one of the reasons he only wrote, uh, I think it was four, Yeah. Uh, is that uh, he was, after he wrote, after he wrote the like first few. Two through six, yeah. Uh, he was injured in a okay. riot. In a riot? He, yeah. I, I well, was that means I mean, you got plenty of time. You're sitting around. I mean... <laughs> it might have... I don't know. I don't know how bad... And then he became... Okay, well, I don't want to disparage Mr. J. Tim. He has done a lot um, for the country, obviously, but uh, I don't know the extent of his injuries. I'm just I'm just giving him a hard time. Uh, he did six, I think, six. total. Okay. Six total. But after the first five, he got hurt in a riot. He went to a rough concert. He did some crowd surfing or something. I don't know. I, I tried to find information on the riot. I couldn't. Could not. Okay. I'll try to circle back to that when we but get to some of the later ones. Circling back though to the, to the, I'm going to talk about the effect. Okay. This is this is the public relations campaign by the Federalists to say you've given to convince the states you guys need to ratify this Constitution. Okay. And Madison lays it out in the most, and we'll get into this in episode one, uh, or not episode one, but well, yeah, episode episode one, where we're talking about Federalist Paper Number One of just the the most severe in biggest terms possible that the, the future of mankind will be determined by their decisions and that and that is how he starts off this idea this fellows papers and and you know he they go through 85 of them but the reality is I'm going to talk about the effect of, of this public relations campaign of the fellows papers the reality is is that most of them were not reliably reprinted outside of New York so that what, they, what was the real well, I mean, effect? They're, they're focused on New York. I, I understand. There's a lot of people address to the people of the citizens of New York, but still, the idea being that he's trying to convince and get enough. I mean, you know, we want we want to try to ratify this constitution. They need more than just New York to ratify it. But by the time this series is well underway, you know, a, a lot of the other states had already decided to ratify. Pennsylvania ratified on December twelfth of. Uh, 80, 1787. New York held out until July twenty sixth. Of 1788, and by the time New York came around to vote, ten states had already ratified. Oh, I think that's okay. I think that's a very useful observation. Is uh, it's ironic that we got these Federalist Papers that everyone <laughs> looks at as the authority now of being the persuasive, definitive of the commentary about what the Constitution means. But it was a, the the primary audience they were addressed to. The state of New York said no. No, thanks, but no thanks. We're not thanks. sure. They, they, weren't, it, they yeah. weren't convincing to the people in New York. The yeah. only reason um, it seems that New York voted to ratify eventually is because nine states had already ratified. Actually, so that I think was ten, because Virginia became ten. Yes. Uh, uh, before New York, so I think it was New York. So they were going to be one yeah. of the few left out, and they thought, yeah. well, you know. We're going to be the odd man If everybody out. is a country and we're outside, then we're probably in deep trouble, so we better join up now. Yeah. They only joined because they had to, it seemed, not because they were convinced. Well, they found that Federalist Papers unconvincing. So their dreams of a, a, a superpower in the United uh, North America would have been diminished if they had been left out in the cold uh, outside the uh, the yeah, much, much they, larger United States of America. Mm -hmm. um, so they would have been the weak neighbor of the United States of America. As as they a, would have been, 
They would have been the Canada of the original 13 colonies, <laughs> wow. basically. Now, let's, let's not disparage Canada, Canadians. Well, I'm not saying New York is bad. I'm just saying yeah, that they would have been... Uh, facts are facts. Yes. <laughs> oh, it's not. All right. I'm going to... Um, just but, but briefly, as a segue into to what will become episode one here, um, uh, is, and if you tune into the next time, uh, in the first paper, Hamilton lays out six topics to be covered over the remaining uh, 84 papers. Uh, the utility of the union to your political prosperity, covered in episodes, or episodes, yeah, number two through uh, number 14. The insufficiency of the present confederation to preserve that union in uh, Federalist Papers 15 through 22. The necessity of a government of at least equally energetic with the one proposed to the attainment of this objective, covered in numbers 23 through 36. The conformity of the proposed constitution to the true principles of republican government, covered in numbers 37 through 84. Uh, its analogy to your own state constitution, covered in number 85. And the additional security, which is... Um, which its adoption will afford to the preservation of that species of government to liberty and to prosperity covered in number 85. That was his intended outline. Mm -hmm. Now, interestingly, um, the fourth topic ends up being expanded a bit uh, in its coverage. And the last two topics are sort of touched on in the last essay. So uh, he gets a little off topic towards the end. He, uh, he could have know. used a little bit better editor. You know, He got a little free form. A little free form. But we're, he's forgiven. You know. Another point about the Federalist Papers is uh, they were in response to the, the anti-Federalists got the jump on them. Yes. Um, they didn't, Alexander Hamilton and his crew didn't start the Federalist Papers um, just as a proactive, you know, uh, with, you know, uh, persuasive effort on their own. Shortly after, you know, the on September seventeenth, the Constitution draft was approved and sent to the states. Uh, so but on the twenty seventh, the first anti-federalist paper was published. Twenty seventh of September twenty seventh, seventeen eighty seven. Thank you. Uh, and then about a month later, October eighteenth, seventeen eighty seven, there was a second one published. Um, Where were they published? You know. What's that? Where were those two published at, respectively? I do not... Well, the first one was published in the New York Press. Okay. And the second one as well. Okay. And so, if you're Alexander Hamilton just walking down to the, you know, the street one day and you see these things in your paper, uh, it seems like there's an active public relations ex effort out there to stop the Constitution. So, this was in response to those. So, what's interesting is the way in which his response to Anna Fenner's papers plays out, because... He decides essentially the gauntlet's thrown down. These guys are writing anti-federalist papers against what I think is the right thing to do, or what he really believed, and what needed to be done. And so, what's he do? He enlists Madison and John Jay, and 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 they go on this campaign, and they really overwhelm whatever movement of the anti-federalists was starting. Even though the anti-federalists started out of the gate first, they don't seem like they were as organized because Hamilton and they Madison and Jay organized throughout they, the process. They they fire off. Essay after essay after essay after essay, some with several essays per week for roughly nine months. E even if they wanted to respond to all these arguments, and mm -hmm. if they weren't organized at any point, they obviously struggled in addressing everything because they're just one barrage after another. And that's a theme that's constant throughout the Anti-Federalist Papers is that you could really tell if, when you re read them that it there's a diversity of different Anti-Federalist writers who don't have any central direction, not only in what they're saying, mm -hmm. but in re when I read them, I came across to me that they don't even have a consistent message. Well, that makes sense because 
Here you have the, the the Federalists that are arguing for something. Yeah, and passed the Constitution. It's great. Yeah, it's passed, and here's why. And the Best NFLers, all, they're arguing against something. They say, "Well, you guys shouldn't pass this." But then they struggle with the second half. Of the but they're not even doing that. They're not but, even doing that. Is because some of them are saying this Constitution is bad. Don't pass it. But when you go further on into the mm-hmm. NFLers papers, some were saying, "Well, parts are good." It's this thing is not great, but you should amend it. Mm-hmm. Others are saying, okay, the federal. So, some are saying, don't pass it. Articles of Confederation are great as is. Some say the Constitution needs to be better to amend it. Some say we do need to f- fix the Articles of Confederation, but this is a bad solution. We should have a different Constitution. Mm-hmm. So when they're arguing for three or four different things, yeah. it really is so, diluting their message. And, and I guess that's, uh, yeah, and I'm sorry, maybe I got ahead of myself because it sounds like uh, what you said is what I was getting at, which was. It's easy to argue against something, but you have to have the other side of the argument, which is you, this would be the better thing, and that's the part that doesn't sound like they could agree upon. Yeah. Okay. Um, and and which would have slowed any type of response, even if they weren't having to deal with and confront with eighty-five papers over the course of nine months, which mm. you know is, I don't know what three a week roughly. Yeah. You know. Uh, so by splitting their effort, also it made them vulnerable to having. Some of their people picked off because, and that's what ended up happening. Who? I'm sorry. By who? The Anti-Federalists. Okay. Because again, remember, part of them are saying this it, this Constitution is not wonderful, but if we just amended it, we might be able to okay, be okay with it. Mm-hmm. Those were sort of the most moderate wing of the Anti-Federalists, and the main thing they wanted was a Bill of Rights, which wasn't in the original Constitution. Mm-hmm. And eventually, that's what happened was they got all the states to eventually get on board by saying. Look, if you pass this, then we'll do a Bill of Rights to address that concern. And that got enough of the Anti-Federalists to switch sides and get on board that they sort of lost lost their steam. Okay. Um, okay. So, yeah, I thought it was important to point out is that uh, you have two very different ways of doing things between the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists. And it seems like, as, as you were saying, Justin, even though they got the first article out there, they didn't define the debate uh, beforehand because they they didn't the labels were applied before they started writing because the Federalists were already the Federalists mm-hmm. but you know that's why they're the Anti-Federalist papers and that was a failure of branding on their part because mm-hmm. the, some of them commented several times in their different Anti-Federalist papers that well the Federalists aren't really the Federalists they're really like the Nationalists okay. because before the Federalists just like it does now it means different things to different people of does it mean strong central government or mm-hmm multiple levels of government, but the word was sort of agreed on as being a good word. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like the Anti-Federalists got themselves trapped into being labeled, you know, the Federalists basically called it, we're the good party, so yeah. the Anti-Federalists like, oh, we're the anti-good the party, party. Yeah. which makes it hard. They yeah. lack the decision, the ability that modern movements have of figuring out a good thing to be pro. So then, as in now, in modern times, branding, so relevant, so key... When working on a public relations campaign. Yes, that's probably the biggest message of this entire contextual thing is branding and marketing. Yeah. Uh, if they would, have, if the Anti-Federalists might have had a good PR firm, they might have ended up, uh, we might still be under the Articles of Confederation or whatever other of five different solutions they would have brought at the end of it. You know, uh, we talked, we spent a little while, more time than I thought we would have uh, in, in diving into the Articles of Confederation today, and I don't know that it would have, uh, was necessarily the intent but one thing that is i think you mentioned in episode zero a which is you know 
stop and think for a moment. What would have happened if we did not ratify the U.S. Constitution? What what differences and how how much would the subsequent you know years of history how would they have changed? Oh, what, I know that. I know that answer. Right. What, oh, you do. Okay, I'm curious. So what, I, I'm, I won't even uh, to attempt to uh, 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 um, speculate. I'm since the answer. I don't sitting, even need to speculate. I have sitting an next, sitting literally sitting next to me, ladies and gentlemen. The answer, uh, please. Well, I, I won't take credit for it. There's actually this great uh, YouTube series I watch. Uh, by this guy, he does. It's called Alternate History Hub, and what he basically does. Alternate History Hub. Alternate History Hub. Okay. He uh, examines what would have happened if some, at some point in history, things would have turned out differently. Okay. And he did a great video on it. He's basically, I sort of stole his idea there when I, earlier when I said, mm-hmm. if the Articles of Confederation were the the, uh, what was left into effect, probably the most likely thing that would have happened in the long term would have been. A, sim- a sort of a uh, similar status as in Europe. Uh, you know, we would have had, if, you know, 13 colonies, 13 states, meaning 13 nations, under its loose confederacy. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I think if sooner or later, those disputes between the states probably would have flared up. And there Absolutely. might have been conflicts between the states. And, you you know, you could say, Man, well, they're, act- they're militarily integrated. Yeah. But look to, like, the other confederacies throughout time of... You know, they would allow low-level conflicts. And that's one of the things the, the Anti-Federalist Papers later on argue about is it's okay for states to have low-level conflicts between each other up to including maybe the level where land is cha- changing hands okay. as long as we come together with common en- enemies. It sort of draws to mind the uh, Iroquois Confederacy. And some people have said that, you know, the Articles of Confeder- Confederation sort of drew off of the structure of the Iroquois Confederacy of they were all one unit against sort of outsiders, mm-hmm. but they'd still fight among themselves about certain things. Interesting. I want, did did uh, I mean? Do you have any thoughts on would they do you or or did this podcast uh, YouTube series you mentioned uh, anybody talk about or address the idea of what would have I mean any shot of like you mentioned New York maybe contending becoming the the Empire State uh, literally of North America? Could you see that? Uh, that under the Articles of Confederation, would the, the 13 have dissolved down into like four or five states, uh, having the strong ones swallowed the weaker ones, so to speak? That was sort of the running hypothesis. Like okay. the states that like, um, states like Delaware, Rhode Island, Connecticut, um, over time, especially as the westward expansion began, and some of it's contingent upon whether or not the bigger states are, you know, win their fight yeah. to get more land as they go westward. Um, they but, absorbed smaller ones. So, so, but beyond that, though, I guess in my mind, I'm thinking like, you know, what would have happened? And West Virginia would still be part of Virginia. Well, <laughs> I mean, there you go. <laughs> but what would, what would have happened when it came to bigger moments in history, like the Civil War? Okay. What look what, at Europe? What what would have happened with the exact next step was look at Europe? What would have happened with World War One or World War Two, or with <laughs> communism? I mean, if, could you imagine addressing um, the the problems of World War Two? With several nations addressing it in place of where America had addressed it. Well, that's the running yeah. hypothesis, I think, of the Federalists such as Hamilton, Jay, and Madison. Their running hypothesis is that, okay, everything's relatively peaceful now and there's relatively conflict now. And right now we overall have more interests in common than we do differently. But we can't take that for granted going forward. Mm-hmm. Going forward, there's going to be decisions we have to make. And there's going to be conflicts. And... The running hypothesis of the Federalists is that if we don't unify more strongly now, 
something will split us down the road. Okay. Despite what the Articles of Confederation say about restricting and prohibiting individual states slash colonies from receiving you know, foreign diplomats and making deals, okay. um, you know, there have been treaties and parts of government where certain provisions have been ignored as time has gone forward. Okay. Um, but, but ironically, the uh, anti-federalists sort of use the same argument in reverse in saying, look, why do we need to centralize so much? Everything's doing growing great right now, and there's yeah. no sign anything's going to be bad in the future. And so then, you know, uh, the Federalists have a bit of an uphill argument in the sense that they're trying to convince people to get rid of something that really isn't completely broken. I mean, it's working fairly well. Not great, not perfect, perhaps, mm-hmm. but probably the average person or the delegates at the time mm-hmm. would have said, you know what, hey, life's not bad. We got rid of England. Like, we're doing all right. So why, why do we need to, like, chuck the whole thing? You know, I mean, so the innate kind of, in my mind, logical response would be, well, look, let's not chuck the whole baby with the bathwater. Let's yeah. just stop for a minute and see what parts of this are broken and fix it. And and, and in that light, the Federalists kind of have the more uphill battle of persuasion where they've got to convince people you need to literally, we're starting from scratch. The Federalist challenge is they've got to basically convince people on whatever the 18th century equivalent is of Main Street yeah. that this stuff affects them. And... They were at a point, the point in history that they were in, I think they had the best chance of making that argument because you got this rebellion, which tends to disrupt people's lives. Yeah. Uh, the, the currency and economic issues are really hurting the merchant class. Mm-hmm. And so it would be normally, I feel like, a urban merchant versus country farmer issue because that's where the anti-federalist support mainly was, country farmers, except for, ironically enough, the fact that Right then, from the state of Kentucky is a great example of that. Because there was not a strong federal government who could organize, although they just did it, but with the Northwest Ordinance and Land Ordinance Act, uh, there was all kinds of problems with people moving west and not having clear title to their land. Because there was no central authority to say, if you settle on this land, it's yours in perpetuity once you buy it and mm-hmm. you own it. You know, if... Abraham Lincoln's own family is a great example of that. They had to move farms several times because they thought they owned clear title and someone came along and challenged it and they weren't able to win their court case. And so regular farmers actually might be more predisposed to hear the federal authority because they want to know, okay, if the federal government says I own this land, do I own it? Um, and that's, that could undercut the anti-federalist argument because people want to be able to make sure that they own their land. That makes sense. Okay, well, I think we're about out of time for this episode. We're kind of drawn to a conclusion, unless you can think of anything else. No, I think we're ready to dive into the uh, individual uh, Federalist Papers. We're going to do episode number one next on Federalist Paper number one. Um, And uh, we'll see you there. Okay, all right. Thanks for listening, everybody.